0: For some of you this past year, maybe two years, have felt like you have been in this never-ending storm. Uh, that for some of you, maybe it wasn't big world news uh, that was the storm. Maybe it was really personal things that you were dealing with and personal events. and. One day you were out on your sailboat and the sun was shining and you were just enjoying life and everything was going smooth and then kind of out of nowhere uh, things took a real different change. The wind changed directions and really picked up. Uh, the waves started to get bigger and bigger and bigger and the skies grew dark and the first wave hit you and uh, you just kind of shook that one off. There wasn't really that bad and then the second wave came and that one was a little bigger and a little more intense. and. Uh, then there was another wave, then another one, and they just kept pounding you over and over and over again, and then uh, they just kept growing more intense, and each one of them pushing you further and further away from where you wanted to be, and each one of them kind of really pushing you uh, almost to the edge, and you're just waiting for the whole boat to, to completely break apart, or, or you're waiting for uh, just this capsizing of this boat that you're kind of clinging on to for life, and for some of you, this has been your reality, maybe just the past year, maybe the past couple of years, and maybe for a really long time. Uh, but if that's you this morning, we've got some great news from Hebrews chapter 6, the end of that chapter. I'm glad you joined us this morning because it is filled with this news that there is an anchor. There's an anchor that holds. There's an anchor that provides safety and security. And there's an anchor that provides hope and strength and refuge. And there's this anchor, and his name is is Jesus. And regardless of how bad the winds are, regardless of how big the waves are, regardless of how long the storms of life are gonna last, we can rest assured that this anchor is going to hold. And so I want to join I want you to join with me in reading uh, this morning from Hebrews chapter six. We're gonna start in verse nine. I read through the end of the chapter, which is through verse 20. The words will be there on the screen, uh, right there below where I'm at. Uh, Hopefully, if I can coordinate speaking and clicking through these at the same time. Uh, But the words should be down there. So Hebrews chapter 6, starting in verse 9. It says, Even though we are speaking this way, dear friends, in your case we are confident of better things connected with salvation. For God is not unjust, and He will not forget your works, Or the the love that you showed for his name when you served the saints and you continued to serve them. Now, we want each of you to demonstrate the same diligence for the final realization of your hope. So that you won't become lazy, but will be imitators of those who inherit the promises through faith and perseverance. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater to swear by, he swore by himself. I will indeed bless you, and I will greatly multiply you. And so after waiting patiently, Abraham obtained the promise. For men swear by something greater than themselves, and for them a confirming oath ends every dispute. But God wanted to show his unchangeable purpose even more clearly to the heirs of the promise. He guaranteed it with an oath. So that through two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie. We who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to seize the hope set before us. We have this hope as an anchor for our lives, safe and secure, to enter the inner sanctuary behind the curtain. Jesus has entered there on our behalf as a forerunner because he has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Let's pray together. And God, this morning I pray that wherever we are at, uh, God, whatever storms we are either in the midst of or whatever storms we are, are finding ourselves headed to, God, I pray this morning we find the encouragement and the strength of this Word. God, I pray this morning we find the encouragement and the assurance that we have that there is an anchor, and that anchor will hold. And God, for some of us, life has been tough, life has been difficult, life has been painful, but God, You have remained steadfast and faithful through it all. And so, God, I pray this morning that you speak through your text, God, that uh, wherever we are at, God, you give us the assurance of salvation, not just for us individually, but our assurance of salvation that Jesus is the one that we can trust, that Jesus is the one that we can hold on to, that Jesus is the one that we should anchor our lives and our soul into, Father. So, God, I pray that you'll speak for these next few moments, and I pray that we will listen, God. And I pray that we'll be encouraged and strengthened by this anchor that we'll hold, Father. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. When it comes to sports, I have found that people, um, there are different types of people, there are people that enjoy sports or a particular team, there are some that are fans of a particular team or a particular sports, and then there are some folks that I would say are somewhat sports fanatics. Right? Uh, now you would have to either be a fanatic or at least a, a very strong fan. Uh, to remember this show that was put out several years ago that had the host of Stuart Scott, he hosted this show called Stump the Schwall, right? Um And each episode started off with three contestants, so three men, and they were all competing against each other. In each round, they eliminated one of those three contestants until it was down to just one contestant and that contestant got a chance to try to stump the Schwab right? and the Schwab was a guy named Howie Schwab and most of us have remember heard of Howie Schwab most of us have probably never even knew anything about Howie Schwab but Howie Schwab is known as the sultan of sports trivia and he prides himself on knowing more about statistics more about players and and just sports in general really than most anybody else and so if you were able to get to the final round you could earn a thousand dollars just by getting to the final round and then if you were able to stump the schwab if you were able to answer a question that he couldn't answer or answer um, something more questions than he did, um, then you could win up to about $30,000 depending on the season that it was in. And so he prided himself, and all these men prided themselves on really knowing more about sports and more sports trivia than anybody else. And so if you are curious, to, if you wanted to stump the Schwab, you had to know things like who led the NFL in sacks in 2004 during the regular season with 16. You'd have to know things like What former Harlem Globetrotter was named the American Basketball Association's first MVP in 1968? Or this question, who was the last player to win home run crowns in both the American League and the National League? By the way, I'm just going to be honest with you. I just saw those questions. I have no idea who any of those were. I I couldn't answer any of those. But what amazes me... It wasn't just those questions, there was all types of other questions. and These guys had so many things memorized, so much sports trivia memorized. They could tell you uh, who players are today and who the players were 10 years ago. They could tell you who's playing now and where they went to college, or where they went to high school, uh, even in the 70s. They could tell you a player's batting average both now and his senior year of college. They could tell you things like how many sacks a player had last year and how many sacks that same player had eight years ago, wherever they were playing. They could tell you things like how many foul shots a player made uh, when they played the Boston Celtics in you know, like an odd year, like 2009 or something like that. And, uh, so what kind of really amazed me is that to win this prize, these guys really had to rely on their memory of all these other people. You see, they're not telling you their life story. They're not telling you things they did or, or things that they're involved in they're really basing their ability to win this prize on their memory of all these other people, of what other people have done and what other people were able to accomplish. And so I'll tell you that about that show because these guys, like I said, they're banking on their memory of other people to win this prize. But when we look at the passage of Hebrew, one of the first assurances we have of salvation is not our memory, it is God's just memory. And so we look at this, uh, that, that God is able to remember these amazing things, not just about himself, but about everybody else, about you and about me. And so if you remember back last week and really the two weeks before that, uh, we were talking uh, in Hebrews, at the at first of chapter six, the end of chapter five. And it was about um, growing up and being mature in your faith and, and, and really not to settle for immaturity, but to go on to maturity, to realize there rewards that you're going to be missing out on if you don't go on to maturity. And if you remember last week and the week before that, um, the the writer of Hebrews, man, he really has this this strong tone to what he's writing. This is not like a, hey, it's okay, pat on the back, you'll get it next time kind of thing. Like, The tone that he's writing in, in those couple of verses, the verses uh, start of chapter 6 and the end of chapter 5, they're really kind of the mama bird pushing you out of the nest, right? This is, you've got to go, you've got to do this, and you've got to take it on your own, right? I'm I'm done kind of spoon-feeding you uh, this kind of deal. And so when we get to verse 9... His tone changes just a little bit. He kind of takes a little bit of a gentler, easier tone. So I want you to look with me what he says in verse 9. He says that even though we're speaking this way, kind of this harsh way, this mama bird shoving you out of the nest way, even though we're speaking that way, dear friends, in your case, we're confident of better things connected with salvation. So what he's telling them is we're confident that you're going to do what we've asked you to do. We're confident that you're gonna go on to maturity, and we're confident that you're not gonna become stagnant in your faith, that that you're not gonna do the bare minimum, that you're not just gonna just get saved and stop there. That you're gonna continue growing on in your faith, you're gonna continue growing on, and you're gonna continue really in the salvation that you have started right and so then we move on in verse 10 and we find out that god's just memory uh, is just that that is there and is what is holding on that's the reason that he has this assurance and so in verse 10 he says for god is not unjust he will not forget your work and the love that you showed for his name when you served the saints and you continue to serve them and so i want you to pay close attention to what that verse says it says that He will not forget the works and the love th- that um, that you showed for His name. You see, the works and love that God is not going to forget, the ones that He's going to remember, are going to be works and love that are shown for His name. Right? And that's probably the most important part of that passage right there, is the part that you—it it is done for His name. See, I want to tell you, there are a lot of people out there that do a lot of good things. Maybe we even say great things. There's lots of organizations out there that you can participate with and you can join that do really good things. But the problem is none of them are going to be remembered by God because they're not done in His name or for His name. You see, they might be done uh, to better humanity. They might be done to, to help somebody out. They might be done for what we would consider a really, really good cause. But they're not done in His name and for His name. They're not done to further His kingdom. And they're not done uh, so that, that God will be glorified. And in that case, those are not things that God is going to remember. All right. And so I want to make sure that we take this just a step further and kind of clarify what I mean when I say this, that, that you cannot do works and show love to him or for his name if you don't know his name. It means that you, you cannot do these things that you want God to remember if you don't have a relationship with him to start with. Right? And so I want you to understand that there are tons of things that you can do, even church things, even serving the saints, as he says in that verse. There are tons of things that you can do that are not going to be remembered by God because you don't have a relationship with him. You see, you can do things to try to gain salvation. But let's be honest, if you're trying to gain salvation, you're not doing it for his name. You're doing it for your sake, for your salvation. Right? You're doing it for yourself and for your own benefit. So we don't get to claim salvation because we read the Bible enough. We don't get to claim and have assurance of salvation because we uh, went to church enough. We don't get to claim salvation and have assurance of salvation because we memorized enough verses in a wana. We don't get to claim salvation and this assurance of salvation because of anything that we uh, are doing for ourselves. None of that gives us the assurance of salvation. Our salvation comes only in the fact that we have this relationship with Him, that we know Him, and we love His name. And this work that he's talking about here is not a works that produce salvation. It's the works that are the results of salvation. And so I want you to hear what the writer of this passage is really saying kind of in context here. What he's telling you is there are people who got saved. And they got saved, and they did great things for God, maybe when they were younger, maybe when they were kids. And for some of us, maybe we got saved at a very young age. And, man, we were just so excited. We just did all kinds of things for God. I mean, we just started reading our Bible, and we started inviting people to church and telling other people about Christ. And for some reason, there are some folks that, that did that, and then they just didn't thrive. Right? They, they just kind of didn't go on to maturity, and for some reason, they just kind of stopped. Right? And they stopped these works that they were doing. They stopped uh, kind of demonstrating this love for him. And so it kind of looks like their life has really done this 180, that this child or this person um, who couldn't get enough of church suddenly finds themselves wanting nothing to do with church at all. Right? And so the world kind of looks at them and the world knows them now, doesn't know that they're a Christian and really doesn't know that they have ever even stepped foot in a church, much less were part of a church at some point in their life. And so what I want to share with you in the context of this verse is that the world might not remember that confession of faith. The world might not remember the works that that kid did for God, but God does. His memory is just. His memory doesn't fail Him. And so the assurance of our salvation is not that we remember or someone else remembers that we made a confession of faith or that we gave our life to Christ. The assurance of our salvation is not resting on our memory. It's resting on God's memory. Our assurance of salvation is that God remembers, that God does not forget the works and the love that we did for His name regardless of how long ago they were, regardless how far away we strayed between then and now. God will not forget His just memory will not fail when it comes time to claim our salvation. Now I want to give this kind of incomplete context here because what he tells you in verse 11 and 12 is that God's just memory is not an excuse to stop doing those good works and stop demonstrating that love. He goes on in verse 11 and 12 and he gives you kind of the same warning that he's been giving you. Hey, don't get lazy don't be lazy don't uh, just kind of continuing uh, life as normally continue on don't be lazy continue on what you're doing he, he's really telling you hey remember what you were doing when you first got saved act like that each and every day you don't just sit here and hang out in verse 9 and 10 in the good old days and yeah when things were this way or that way no some of us we need to camp out in verse 11 and verse 12 that tells us listen is there air in your lungs then you need to get to work has God called you home? No. Then there's something He's got for you to do, right? He's not finished with you yet. So don't be lazy. Don't stop doing those works. Get back to the works. Get back to showing His love, right? Because while His memory will not fail, His memory is also not unjust. Meaning that when we get to heaven, God's not going to reward all of us equally, right? There are not equal rewards. In heaven, just because you got there. There are different rewards for different folks because some folks did the bare minimum and just stopped, and then some folks carried on to maturity. And so what he's telling you is when you get to heaven, his memory is just. He remembers all those things that you did, and he remembers all those things that you didn't do. He remembers those times that you moved on to maturity, and he remembers those times that you didn't. So don't stop. Don't become lazy, and don't just stop and, and think, well, my time's up. Or I'm ready to retire. Now what he's telling you in this passage is God remembers what you did. Now keep doing what you've been doing. So the first assurance of our salvation is God's just memory. But the second assurance of our salvation is God's inevitable promise. That when God makes a promise that it's going to happen, it is inevitable that it's going to take place. You see, because unlike us, God doesn't have to put up collateral. He doesn't have to swear by something uh, for his promise, right? Let me show you what I mean. When you and I go to get a loan, whether it be for a house or for a car or something else like that, we have to make a promise that we're going to pay that money back, right? We have to sign all these papers. And for some folks, the process looks a little different because for some folks, maybe they're young, maybe their credit's not all that great. And for some folks, their word is not necessarily sufficient enough. Right, and so for some folks, for the bank to give you that loan, they're going to require a cosigner, right? And a cosigner is someone who is going to fulfill that promise even if you can't, right? So for some folks, the the promise of paying this back is really dependent on someone else, someone else who uh, honestly either has better credit than you do, or someone who has a uh, better income than you do. It's this promise that hey, if I don't pay it back this person is going to do it because they have the finances to do it. They have the credit to do it. And so you can take my word that this promise is going to be paid back because I've got them backing me, right? But, and so many times the bank will accept that promise because it's backed by someone else. But if you look with me in verse 13, it tells us simply that that God is so superior that he doesn't need a cosigner on his promise. And verse 13 says, For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater to swear by, he swore by himself. Right? Since, since there's nobody that has better credit, nobody that has better um, income, nobody that can be superior to God, who's he going to get to cosign for him? And the answer is nobody. He, he doesn't need somebody, so the only thing he can swear by is himself. Right, And so the second way that we as people can get a loan is not necessarily a cosigner, uh, but we promise to pay that back. And if we don't pay it back, we have to put something in connection with it. Right? We, we have to tie something of value to it. So we, we call this collateral, that we have to put something of value connected with the loan. And so if it's a house loan, then we'd say, hey, give us this loan. We're going to pay this back. And if we don't, if at some point we stop paying it back, then you know what happens. We lose all the money that we paid in and we lose whatever we're paying for. So the house is what we put up for collateral or a car or whatever it is. That becomes collateral. That is the guarantee that we're going to come true to our promise. right? And so that's the guarantee that we're going to follow through with what we said. And so this is what the, the author is talking about in verse 16 when he says, Excuse me, i got my verses out of order here. Verse 16, For men swear by something greater than themselves, and for them a confirmed oath ends every dispute. So he's talking about this idea of this collateral, that we put something up, that we put up this security, that we're going to confirm this is going to take place. And so that gives whoever the promise is receiving, or whoever is receiving the promise, that hey, you can trust this person because they're going to lose something of great value. So kind of the question becomes, what can God attach to His promise of our salvation that shows us that we can fully trust Him, that we can fully trust this promise that He's given us? And there's two things. The first one in verse 17 is His unchangeable promise. Purpose. The word purpose there can be translated as counsel or advice. And, and really this is his unchangeable word. And so this is where the story of Abraham fits in. God's counsel, his word, his promise, it doesn't change regardless of what else does change in that time period. So this is where verse 14 and verse 15 really come into play. You see, uh, in verse 14, God gives Abraham this promise. And he says, I will indeed bless you and I will greatly multiply you. Now, some of you are familiar with the story, and some of you know the story from the book of Genesis, uh, but for some of you, you may need this reminder that when God gives Abraham this promise, Abraham is 75 years old. His wife, Sarah, is 65 years old. Right? And so they're, they're pretty much past their childbearing years, and God gives them the promise that there's going to be a multitude. And they don't even have one child by this time, much less this multitude of children. But God makes Abraham this promise. And when God makes a promise, He stands by it. And so we read on in verse 15. It says, And so, after waiting patiently, Abraham obtained the promise. By the way, you need to know that patiently took 25 years. 25 years after that promise was made to Abraham and Sarah, God fulfilled it by giving them their first son, Isaac. 25 years of waiting. 25 years of anticipating. In 25 years, Abraham and Sarah, they traveled a lot. They questioned a lot. They took matters into their own hands. 25 years, they sinned and didn't remain faithful to the promise, but God did. You see, He was faithful to His promise throughout our law. When God makes a promise, we treat it like it's this, this unconditional guarantee. And it's not dependent on what we do. It's not dependent on uh, what we say or what happens. It's not dependent on the circumstances around us. It is dependent on His faithful word. See, the second piece of collateral that God attaches to His promise is not just his unfailing, unchanging word, but it's also his unchanging personal identity. is his character and his integrity. We skip over uh, to verse 18, and he says in verse 18, uh, that it is impossible for God to lie. That it is impossible for him to lie. You see, the truth is part of the essential nature of his divinity. And so what that really means is that if God did tell a lie, He would not be the God of truth and he would cease to be God. And if he ceased to be God, then he wouldn't be God and he would cease from being the truth. So it is by nature impossible for him to tell a lie because he would cease to be God and he cannot cease to be God. And so now we're trying to wrap our mind around this. What does this have to do, this promise have to do with the assurance of our salvation? Yeah, that was a great promise to Abraham, but what does that have to do with us? How does that assure salvation for us and you see we read on in verse 18 it says we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to seize the hope set before us. you see in the old testament and the writers writing to a group of hebrew believers and, and they would have grown up in this culture and they would have known but in the old testament and, and really even in the first century uh, there were places there were these cities of refuge th- this uh, place of refuge and this place of refuge was a place of protection it was really a place where if you accidentally uh, did something that caused someone to die. Um, You didn't intentionally kill them, it was an accident, something happened, their blood relatives would come after you to avenge that person's death, right? But if you made it to the city of refuge, if you fled to the city of refuge, if you got inside the walls of that city, then you were protected within the walls of that city, that you were protected from the person's wrath. You were protected from the punishment that someone else was, or the avenging, that someone else was trying to to seek on you. And what's really interesting is that the, the protection was not really the job of the city, It was really the job of the priest within the city. Remember, these are God's representatives and people's representatives. And so the the priests were the ones whose job was to protect the person, to ensure the safety of the person who was seeking the refuge. And so here's how all this ties together, because he started in chapter 5 talking about the priesthood of Christ he ends this chapter talking real quick about the priesthood of christ the whole next chapter chapter seven is about the priesthood of christ and so what he's really telling you is for us who fled for refuge for us that came to the place where wrath was already poured out that came to the appointed place of protection there is protection there and the priest jesus christ is there to protect us if we run to the place that god appointed for refuge, The place against wrath, the place that, that this is where salvation is. It is the place at the foot of Jesus Christ. And if we run there, then his priesthood is obligated to protect us. That, that we are guaranteed that if we flee to the cross, when we come to the cross, we receive this promise of his protection. That the wrath is not going to get us there. And because of His character, because of His integrity, because He is God, and because His promises are inevitable, and His promises are these unconditional guarantees, that when we come to the promise of salvation, when we come to the promises of the cross, that He gets our sins and we get His righteousness, we can completely, 100%, fully have assurance that that is the case because God does not lie, He cannot lie, and He's always been true to the promises that He made. And so when it comes to our salvation, there's this beautiful assurance that we have in the priesthood of Christ that we flee to this place of refuge. We flee to the place that was appointed. This is where wrath will not touch you. And the place is the cross of Jesus Christ. And so when we flee there, the promise of God's inevitable promise is going to happen. We will be secure. You see, we see the steadfast Son uh, really spelled out in these last two verses in verse 19 and verse 20. And these are beautiful verses. Verse 19 we have this hope as an anchor for our lives safe and secure it entered the inner sanctuary behind the curtain i told you these are beautiful verses and this is part of the reason in our uh, learn category of our learn love live this is the verse uh, this and verse 20 are the verses that we're striving to memorize because you want a great picture of assurance of salvation for you personally or for us as Christians as a whole, it really is right here in these two verses. You see, He compares His Son to the anchor. The anchor is safe, and the anchor is secure. The anchor is solid. It is not moving. It is steady and secure. But what's interesting is this anchor is not anchored to the bottom of an ocean. This anchor is instead anchored in the inner sanctuary, right? in the behind the curtain. For the Hebrews, this was in the very presence of God. Right? So our anchor is not in the earth. Our anchor is in the heavenly realm, in the inner sanctuary, behind the curtain. Our anchor holds within the presence of God. And then it goes on in verse 20. It says, Jesus has entered there on our behalf as a forerunner. Because He has become the high priest... Forever in the order of Melchizedek. And we're going to talk about Melchizedek a whole lot next week. So we're not going to focus on that. But we're going to focus on this fact that Jesus entered there on our behalf as a forerunner. A forerunner is just what that word says. It is somebody who runs in front of somebody who goes before you to the exact place that you are going, right? And so He is our anchor in that He is where we want to be. He is where we desire to be, and that is in the presence of God. He is already forerunned. He is already there, right? And so we can trust Him because He's already been there before us. We trust in the one who's safe and solid and secure. We trust Him regardless of what happens in this life, regardless of how tough, this life, yet, regardless of what this world throws at us, our assurance is not in this world. Our assurance is the anchor that's behind the curtain in the presence of God in the heavenly realm. It is the assurance of His steadfast Son that the anchor really does hold. Lawrence Chewing once was given a concert and he asked uh, if, if anybody in the crowd had ever had a year where everything happens wrong all at the same time. Now, I know for some of us who are watching online, you're like, well, yeah, that we, we've been there. That was 2021, or maybe it was 2020, or maybe it was some other year in, uh, in your life. But for Lawrence, his year that everything went wrong was a little further back. It was 1992, and he and his wife described this as their year of sorrow. He was a pastor at a church, and uh, the church that he actually helped plant, and the church that he was currently the pastor of, has started down this road a a very divisive, very ugly split. Uh, Things were getting bad between his members. Uh, His father, in the early part of the year, passed away, and him and his wife both found out they were both having some of these underlying kind of pretty major medical issues that they were going to have to work through. And and one of them caused the, uh, the wife to have her third miscarriage. And so as Lawrence was holding his 14-week-old premature child in his hand who had passed away, he simply looked up in God and he said it felt like um, that everything that he held and everything that he loved was slipping through his fingers like grains of sand. And and it was just one thing after another after another. And and the only thing that really gave him any relief from the despair and the depression that he was going through Uh, through was when he had an opportunity to sit down at his piano and he played the piano and he would just sit down and he would really try to just lose himself in some music and so whether music he knew or things he were just going and so one day he sat down at the piano and it was an extremely tough day for him and he just started letting his fingers play and he, he began to realize that he was playing a song that he had never heard before he didn't recognize it and then he said that these lyrics started coming to his mind and so he took out a piece of paper and he wrote these words to this song. He says, I had seen visions and I had dreams. I have held them in my hands, but I never knew they would slip right through like they were only grains of sand. I have journeyed through long dark night out on the open sea by faith alone, sight unknown, and yet His eyes were watching me. Then he writes the chorus of the song that some of you may know. The chorus says this, The anchor holds. Though the ship is battered, the anchor holds, though the sails are torn. I have fallen on my knees, and I face the raging seas. The anchor holds in spite of the storm. The assurance of our salvation is not in us. The assurance of our salvation is not in what this world has to offer or what we look like on the outside. It's not the storms that we've gone through or the storms that we're in right now. The assurance of our salvation is that God's just memory, the assurance of our salvation is in God's inevitable promises that He's made to us. It is in God's steadfast Son. It is the anchor that holds in spite of the storms that rage in our life. So this morning, if you're looking for a place that will hold you safe and secure, if you're looking for a place that you can trust for all of eternity, then look to the God who's just in His memory. Look to the God who is uh, inevitable in His promises, who cannot lie. Look to the God who gives you an anchor seated firmly in the heavenly realm who went before us so that we can come after Him. He is the anchor that holds. And He is the assurance of our salvation both as individuals and as Christians as a whole. Let's pray together.